Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Pasco Templar Podcast. I have a treat for all of you. Um, I had the chance to interview Kristen Cornelison. She dropped some truth bombs and shared some deep insight about her life. And it was just so insightful because I don't think we get the chance to talk about these kind of things at church or Sunday school and sacrament. So I'm excited for you guys to listen. Hope you enjoy. Okay. Well, I have Kristen Cornelison in the house. So, Kristen, thanks for coming on board. Appreciate you hopping on the podcast. Um, I have a lot to talk about, a lot of questions, because I feel like a lot of what you have shared in Sunday school and things that just kind of in passing conversations, I feel like just want to get to know you more. So, anyways, where are you originally from? Well, um, my family was military, and so... I spent for six years of my life in England, mm-hmm. and then we moved to Missouri for two years, and then California is where I did junior high and high school. Mm. And where was that military at? Because I think we've talked about this before. Um, like the branch? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Where were you at? So my dad did Air Force bases, but the base that I remember the most was a Marine Corps base in 29 Palms, California. Yes, and as well as any Marine would know, definitely the armpit of where the Marine Corps is at. So Yes. <laughs> so how long were you at 29 for? Oh, let's see. Um, about 14 years. Um, my parents were total. So I was there for probably about 12. Okay. Okay. And how? when did you, like, what ages were you, were you there for? We moved there when I was 9, 10. And I moved out when I was 19. Oh, okay. And so what was that like growing up in the in a military family? I, I loved it, and I also didn't know any different. But um, I recognize now that I don't live uh, in a military town. Um, <laughs> it's a very transient place to be. There's Here? a lot of people coming in and oh, out. Oh, military, yeah. Um, and so I, you are always meeting new people. It also gave my family a lot of opportunity to travel. Um, we, I remember one summer, my dad had to go to Washington DC. Um, and so we went for two weeks and it, it was so much fun. And then from there we went down to Florida to see my grandma. So it just promoted a lot of travel for my family, which gave us a lot of cultural experience in different places, which was great. Yeah. How do you feel like that much travel um, changed the way you saw people and Oh, 100%. Places. How do you feel like it did? So I think because we got to travel and because I got to see so many different cultures and different ways of living, there is a stigma around Southern California, which I happen to love. <laughs> My family would totally disagree with that, but... Um, I love the chillness of Southern California, but then you go to Washington, D.C., and there's a busyness, and there's a workforce there, and people believe in education and working. I mean, that is what they do. They wake up, and they work, and they go to bed, and they wake up, and they work, and they go to bed. And so I think being able to travel and see so many different varieties of people, it makes you aware that you're just a small fish in a big old pond (laughs) and i mean how would you contrast contrast that with being here in tri-cities no i love the tri-cities it 
has been a huge blessing for my family. Mm-hmm. And this is absolutely where Cody and I want to raise our kids. Um, just because it promotes a family style, um, there's a camaraderie, there's loyalty, there's not that the military doesn't have that, but living in a small town like this, um, quote unquote small town. Um, I mean, it's just most of the people here, their family lives within a couple hour drive and they grew up on farms and they, they went to high school here. They're, you know, Cody, he, he's a bombers and, um, it's fun because, Tiffany Harker is a bombers and we tease about that. And Mm. so like, there's some aspects to growing up here and living here, you know, people and you grew up with them. And sometimes I think that that could be a good thing because you know, their history. Um, but, um, it, I just think it promotes this safety of knowing a constant, whereas the military it's ever changing. And I do think in a lot of ways, I learned to have the constant in myself and in my family. Mm, and um, and I like that. I like that my constant is with my family. Hmm. Now, after you moved, where did you go? Did you go From to school? From California. I went yeah. to school. Mm-hmm. I went up to Rexburg and I went to... Classic. Uh-huh. But I didn't go to BYU. I didn't go to BYU. I went to uh, I went to Paul Mitchell. So I went to hair school, and I was there for two full years. Wait, why did you go to Rexburg to go to Paul Mitchell? Because my dad wanted me to get married. Straight up. Straight. I was Paul Mitchell was not my idea. BYU school was not my idea. I originally wanted to go to um, psychology, go into psychology, and so how fitting. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, I. It, you know, it's a toss-up. You either do beauty school or you do psychology, right? Just kidding. But um, my dad went up to Rexburg. My, both my siblings were there. They were married. They went to go visit. And my dad had gone to the beauty school there and said, my daughter needs to go here. So they actually called me. They said, hey, your family was in and they thought that you would love it here. I was so offended. I was like, my dad doesn't think I can amount to anything. I had a military father. And I remember walking in the grocery store. I was 16, 17. And my dad said to me, now, Kristen, I need you to get an education. And I need you to give back to society. And you cannot be a girl that relies on a man. Because you never know what life is going to bring you. Mm. And that almost broke my heart. Because, you know, I was a girl. And... I wanted to be the housewife and all that goes into that. Oh, and my dad was like, no, you need yeah. to get an education. You need to make sure that you can provide for your family in case anything ever happened. And so when a beauty school called me and said, hey, your dad thinks you should go here. <laughs> it was like, oh, this hurts just a little. So I did not want to go. But then my dad, they came home and um, I was going to the community college at the time and I was a kindergarten aide. And, um, he said, I will pay for you to go up there to visit your siblings, go check out the beauty schools, just see, just see if it feels right. So I did, I flew, I was like, fine, I got to go see my siblings and I'm going to come home and it's going to be an absolute, no, I'm not going to beauty school. Mm. I went up there. You were already living there then? My siblings were. Were they mm-hmm. going to Rexburg? Yep. Uh, um, okay. they, both of them, my sister and my brother. Okay. And, um. I went, I checked out all the beauty schools. We went to Paul Mitchell last. I walked through Paul Mitchell and I was like, I'm supposed to be here. And that was the end of that. I enrolled and um, got 
there in July. So started July of 2008, 2009, mm. 2008, I don't remember, who knows. So that's when you started there? That's when I started there. I left in 2010. So after you got done with that then, when you left in 2010, mm-hmm. where'd you go? Did you I went on a mission. Ah, okay. So you haven't met Cody. No, no. No, no, no. Nope. Okay. So where'd you go on your mission? Uh, Richmond, Virginia. <laughs> and uh, I didn't want to go on a mission either. The, there's been quite a few things that the Lord has told me to do that I didn't want to do. Rexburg was one, and mission was another. Mm. But yeah, I went on a mission. So, and I wasn't out very long. I had to come home because of health issues, but, um, my parents were actually on their way out on a mission as well. So they went to Mongolia and we were going out within, I think two months of each other. So I left in May and my parents were due to leave. Oh, in August. So however many months that is, but I, in July, or maybe it was the beginning of August, I was so sick and they could not figure out what was wrong. And uh, my mission president wanted to keep me and Salt Lake got wind of it, called my mission president, said, no, she's done, send her home. So my sister and her husband were finishing physical therapy school. So they were moving every six weeks because of clinicals. Oh, yeah. And um, I couldn't go with them because I needed needed something that I could see a doctor and be stable. And my brother, um, Troy, he was in Afghanistan. So his wife and kids were in Tucson with her parents, so couldn't be with them. And my brother lived in Vegas, my oldest brother, Travis. And so it was, God was like, nope, the only place that you can go is Vegas. So I went down to Vegas. It just so happened that my parents' visa hadn't come in yet. So they were like in this limbo. So they drove down from Salt Lake came and picked me up in Vegas, got me settled at my brother's house, and that's where I was, was Hmm. Vegas. So then, how much longer after did you meet Cody? Two years. So what did you do? Maybe three years. What did you do in between that time? Ugh. A little bit of everything? I (laughs) wanted to be married, but God had other things in mind. So I, let's see, um, I got, I came home, knew that I needed to get a job, but you can't just move to a new city and say, I'm going to go be a hairstylist. You don't make any money that way. So, um, and I needed money right now because I was on my own. And um, I went and I worked at Kohl's. And eventually I became the jewelry supervisor at Kohl's, which I loved. But I had gotten into a salon to try and build up some clientele. And everybody told me, listen, if you're going to be successful at all with hair, you got to just, you got to suffer and just give it your all. So that's what I did. I quit Kohl's about a year later um, and went into the salon. And I was there full time for about a year trying to build clientele. And again, this is at the time when Vegas is still trying to recover from the recession. Mm. Vegas got hit hard because Vegas is completely built on tourism. I mean, everything, any local that makes decent amount of money is usually working on the strip in some capacity. Mm. And um, so locals were struggling and we didn't have a lot of traffic at the time. And so people went from getting no haircuts to great clips to finally going back to the salon. 
And uh, I was just at that point when people were trying to come back. So it was a struggle. So finally, about a year in, I was like, I have no money and I need something. Um, I found a job with a bishop. My, um, my single adult bishop knew a bishop in the home ward of the stake who was a lawyer and he needed a legal assistant part-time and I was like that's perfect I can work part-time in the mornings at the law firm and then I'll do the salon in the evenings which is great so I did that and within about uh, I think it was only about two months two or three months of working at the law firm I was like I love this I love everything about it mm-hmm. and so I went full-time And I became um, a legal assistant there, and I worked my way up, and I was doing a lot for the law firm. I loved it. Hmm. If I was smarter, I would have gone to law school, but... (laughs) Yeah, I don't think I'm even smart enough to go to law school. (laughs) Uh, I don't... And I don't even know if it takes smarts. There's an amount of... I I lost a lot of faith in our justice system by working Uh, in the law firm, but... And I worked for great man really good man but um i don't know i just so what do, you, what do you feel like was the top two or three things that you were very surprised about when you at your time at working at that law firm at the law firm hmm that i was surprised about the the lack of um what's the word i'm looking for I want to say decency, but that feels really harsh. Um, <laughs> people lie. They will lie. They will find any loophole so that it's not, quote unquote, lying. And it's just not honest to get what they want. And you feel like that was mainly from clients that they were working oh, with? Oh, no. That's or insurance like- companies and uh... and even lawyers. I mean, now, and again, I worked for a very, very good man. Um, I think he was probably the best lawyer you could ever find as far as honesty goes but even then there were times where it was like look if we want to win this we got to we got to find the The we got to find the loopholes here and that is just how it goes that is just how it goes and of course I worked personal injury and so um there were some people where they had gotten into a car accident and they of course it was severe enough but they would want to go to surgery well if you want to make good money in a lawsuit you want to get surgery. And sometimes you're like, that surgery is going to ruin their life. And so it's things like that where I was just like, we're going to ruin their life over a million dollars. Yeah. And I, I struggled with that. Yeah. What was something else that you were surprised about in regards of how the system works or something mm. you've, you have now in the back of your mind that's changed the way you see about at least the legal system or society? Uh, I feel like... That's kind of, that's hard for me, I guess. Um, I think you take good, decent people and you put money in front of them and it changes them. Hmm. And that bothers me. That, and I, but I think that that is our, that is our government. Government is run on money. It's all about who can get the next dollar bill, who can get the next leg up. And that's all that matters. And it's no longer about the well-being of the people or what is right even if it means you're not going to get the money that you want that bothers me do you feel like people didn't the idea of like taking ownership of oh yeah everybody lies (laughs) i slipped i i 
I, I asked that because uh, my brother and I talk all the time. And he talked about um, this weird thing that, like, when you grow up, you're always taught you need to take responsibility for that. Mm. You need to take ownership for that. It's the, You have to own up to that. You have to be able to apologize for that. I don't actually th- think that that's normal. I think that that's a rarity in homes. Well, true. But at least the way, and, and, and we're reflecting, of course, the way we were grew, we, we Yes, raised, right? I was, yep. Right. So so just, just based on that, assuming that's the case, right? Mm-hmm. But what's the first, when somebody gets an accident, what's the first thing they advise you to not do? Take at fault. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So that's what I mean. Like, it's just, it's an interesting thing. I, and again, I'm, I'm no lawyer. I'm not going to speak on behalf of that. You have a lot more experience than I do, at least in that field. But I think it's just interesting because I think that the fields that we work in, um, we learn a lot about. Like, mm-hmm. <clears throat> like uh, Walmart. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot about Walmart and how retail works. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, take, you know there, there's always something to learn. Mm-hmm. And whether it's good or bad, it's, re- re- it's irrelevant. It's just more about learning. Yes. And so I think that being aware how the what material things can do to people, I think just changes your perspective on it. And, yeah. and if anything, be, becomes more aware, right? It's not like you live your life out of fear necessarily. It just means that you're more aware of what how people can react if there are certain objects in front of them. And I, I oh, think yeah. that's, a, that's a pretty valuable lesson that, yeah. that's interesting about that. So how did you meet Cody? So I was in the single adult ward in Las Vegas and um, I, because I had come home early from my mission, I felt really guilty about that for a long time mm. because yeah. I, one, I didn't want to go on my mission to begin with. And then I came home sick and everybody looks down. It's just kind of like in Mormon culture, if you don't go on a mission, people immediately like, oh, you didn't go on a mission. You know, and for me, it was like, oh, I came home sick. Oh, you came home sick. And so I I lived with that guilt. Long story short, came home. um, The stake president that that released me, I had never met him before. And in that office, he said, you know, I knew that you were coming to me for a couple of days now. And I've been really prayerful about what um, I needed to say to you, what God, what Heavenly Father wants you to know. And he said, it came to me as clear as day that your mission in Richmond is over. You did exactly what the Lord needed you to do. And your mission is here in Las Vegas. And of course I heard it. I loved it for about five minutes until the guilt came back in and then I disregarded it. Mm -hmm. And I went for about a year after my mission of just being naughty. And, um, I felt like, well, I'm going to hell because I came home early from a mission. So if I'm going to hell, I might as well have fun while I'm doing it. Mm -hmm. So I had a boyfriend that was really not good. And, um, it took me about a year and I remember driving in, um, a mall parking lot in Las Vegas. Which mall was it? It was, um, the outlets down in low Las Vegas Boulevard below town square. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't. They're the outlets. They're called the yeah, outlets, no, but they're sure. also the North Las Vegas outlets, not those ones. Correct, right? Okay, the South. We're talking about the, the one. Okay, gotcha. South <laughs> South outlets. I was driving down there, and I don't. I had this conversation with me, and I think it was me in the spirit, and it was like, you know, the church is true, and it was like, yeah, I know the church is true. I will never be able to deny Jesus Christ. Like, 
or that this is his church. And it was like, then why are you living like this? Like, it's not making you happy. And so in that moment, I realized even if I'm going to go to hell, I'm at least going to go to hell doing the best that I can. And, uh, and I, I switched, I went from, I got rid of the boyfriend. I started getting really, I never went inactive mostly because I think that there's a lot of comfort for me in, in the church. And so I, I always went to church, but I was like, I'm going to get, I'm going to start participating. And that's when I started getting into the word missionaries. And I got called as a word missionary. I started working with the elders because I worked at the salon at the time. I could drop anything and I could go to a lesson. And so I would go to all the lessons and um, got really, and my singles ward, we did 12 baptisms that year, which was huge for a singles ward. That is, yeah, and um, and it was fantastic, and and that wasn't because of me. That's not what I'm saying, but I got to That's participate. Right. Once, in that. once you got called, boom! No, 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 <laughs> no. But I got to participate, and I got to see all of that, and I realized this is where my mission is. But my salon was down the street from the mission office. I was working really closely with the elders who were the APs. So the APs would come down to my salon all the time. I'm like, hey, let's talk about this person. And then I started cutting their hair on Monday. And then I, they started bringing all the elders. So every Monday, because no one works hair on Mondays in Vegas at the time. They do now. But at the time with the recession and everything, the salon was just closed. So we'd open it up and I'd have about six to eight elders in mm, there. That sounds like a lot of fun. Every Oh, it was a blast because they could let their hair down. So I got to know them on a very personal level. But I also got to be with the missionaries. And it was just this really unique opportunity for me. But Cody was one of them. Yeah. And he was only six months in. I cut his hair. He was there for six months. He was an office elder. Okay. He was there for six months. And then he left, went up to North Las Vegas for a year. And he, when he got home, um, well, there was another elder that was like, would you ever date? We called him Corny. He was like, would you ever date Corny? And he, you have to remember, he looked like he was 12. He he weighed like 145. He had these big old rosy lips and just looked like a baby. And so I had a huge attachment to him. But I was like... More like, more like the baby brother. Yeah, I was like, yeah. he is so young. Like, yeah. we would never work. Especially because he's soft-spoken and I'm not, obviously. So really? I was like, that would never work. Really. So, so hold on, really quick. I'm kind of curious. Backtrack really quick. Unwrap this a little bit more. There was a time where you were not actively active, but you knew you had a testimony, right? When you were with your boyfriend. I don't know if you could say that I wasn't active. I didn't take the sacrament. Okay, so you didn't. You still went to church. I did go to church, but I didn't. You did. You weren't fully invested in it. And no, and I don't think I had a calling either. Right. So, so only time in my life. So, like during that time. What was your way of thinking through that? Oh, right? I was like, miserable. Do you know what I mean? Like you, you're living this lifestyle that you know that you know you knew. It's not like you were dumb, right? You knew what you were doing, right? But you still went to church. Why did you still keep going to church? I couldn't let go. So there was a comfort, right? Do you feel like no? Or what do you feel like it was? I I couldn't let go of God. I couldn't let go of Jesus. I I knew Him too well. Because I think sometimes we have friends that do just kind of want to do their own thing oh yeah 100 percent. And, and so we see that and, and i think as 
somebody that you know that wants to be their friend they don't know how they don't know what to say it becomes difficult they're not sure they don't want to be too pushy but then they like don't want to they want to support the person not the sin type of thing mm -hmm. i guess that's that's kind of the interesting thing is um what was something that was helpful or consistent um outside of you being still going to church that um you know kept you there that's that's a really good question because I I don't know that I had gotten really great friends until towards I started to get better friends probably seven or eight months into that journey mm -hmm. and they were part of the the ward um, I don't know what did keep me consistent besides the fact that I just had a testimony of Jesus Christ and Heavenly Father but let me going back to what you said my my opinion so this isn't personal this is my opinion okay i think that when we have friends or family members that need to take a step away from the church i think what they need more than anything is love and understanding god has asked us not to judge mm -hmm. and it's one it's a commandment but really i think it's a gift how do you do that though and i think that's the the hard question because i 100% agree 100% agree, but I think the question is, how do you show that love? Because it could vary so much on the person, and I know there's not a silver bullet answer necessarily. But how do you show that love when you, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, I, for me, for me, yeah. I love people. I love who they are, and I feel like generally when I meet someone, it's not that long before I see what is good in them. Everybody has goodness. And there are just some people that drive you absolutely crazy. That's, there's no one exempt from that. So I'm not saying that I just love everybody, which I, I generally do. I do. I generally do just love people. Um, but I think you just have to love them and love them where they're at. So we we had Cody and I have recently had some family members that have stepped away from the church. And that was a really hard pill for us to swallow, mostly because we love them so much. I mean, we we don't want them to be without this goodness that we have in our life. But once you take that away, and once you take away that selfishness of like, don't you want this? Don't you need this? This is so good for you. Once you take that away and you realize it's not about you, it's about them and Christ, and you realize, all right, well then, if Christ just wants me to love them, then how do I do that? And this, th these family members have really chosen some paths that we don't agree with. Okay, so we don't need to dwell on that. We don't need to talk about that every time that we turn around. There's other things that we can discuss. There's other things that we can do. And I'm not saying that you sit with someone and they're like, oh yeah, I totally went and got wasted. And you're like, don't talk to me about that. <laughs> like, that's not okay either. Yeah, right. You know, but I do think it's okay to be like, oh, okay. Well, did you make it home safe? Like, turn it around and it's okay to not dwell on what they were doing. Turn it around and turn it into a different conversation. Yeah, don't don't get shocked in the moment. Like, don't get shocked. Well, well, we like, do live in the world. People are going to get drunk. People are going to see rated R movies. People are going to drink coffee. It's not the end of the world. And I can promise you, that is not going to be the thing that keeps them out of heaven. Yeah. 
So don't dwell on the checkboxes. Get rid of the checkboxes. And just love the person for who they are. And Christ will help you see them for who he sees them as. Did that make sense? Christ will help you see them as they are. And as he made them. And and maybe something that might help is asking the right questions of, you know, to yourself. Like, right, if... Right, if if you have a friend or a family member that is stepping aside from the church, right, and whether they blatantly say it or they just do it, uh, asking yourself like, how how can I show love? Because mm. I think that's when you find when you ask yourself the right questions, you find the right answers. Oh yeah, right? but and and I just not to put words in your mouth, but when you say asking yourself, asking God, all right, Heavenly Father, how do you want me to love them? Right. What do what do they need? And, um, I think he will show you exactly what they need. Mm-hmm. And I'm also a firm believer that sometimes people need to be sat down and put in their place. I'm not afraid of that either. I'm not afraid of that conversation, but more often than not, mm-hmm. people just need to know that you're going to love them. Even if they don't go to church. Why is that the end all be all? I think when you understand that we are the true church because we make covenants with God through the power of the priesthood, through a gift given by Heavenly Father to us, Mm -hmm. then you realize that's the end goal. Well, do you know how many people we go to church with that that goal is still a little ways away for them? Like, it, it doesn't have to be, everybody is on a different journey with God and Christ and that's their business with Jesus. But if you can love them and you can support them of who, as who they are, then God will do the rest. He will take your actions of love and it will speak volumes for him and that person rather than you saying, well, you didn't go to church or you went out to eat on Sunday. So what? Let them be. That's their deal. That's not yours. It's not for you to talk about. Well, and I think that holds a lot of value since you did go through mm-hmm. experiences. I, I think that's helpful, helpful insight. You know, when sure. I lived with my brother who does not claim to be LDS, he does not, he does not subscribe to that. Um, okay. But he moved out at 18 and that was, he was done. He never stepped foot back in a church until I think one of us either got married and he had to come to reception or one of us had a kid and we were doing blessings. But he just didn't, that was no, 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 and he is now. I love all of my siblings dearly, but out of all of us, he is the most Christ-like one. Hmm. He is the most giving, the most kind, the most willing to take the shirt off of his back and help anyone around him, and that is his roots coming in. Yeah, whether he likes to admit it or not, but that is the roots coming in, and so even for him, I know that Jesus in him. They're on their own journey and that Jesus has him. But that doesn't mean that I, when he sits down and is like, hey, let's watch this right at our movie, which I I don't subscribe to that checkbox anymore either. But I, you know, when I got home from my mission, I had grown up in a home where it's PG-13 or nothing. Like you don't watch right at our movies, not even a glimpse of it. And I moved in with him, and I watched more Red R movies <laughs> than I had ever watched in my entire life. And so it was things like that where I was learning how to love him, even though he wasn't going to church, and still be his sister and still say, hey, it's okay that you don't go to church. 
but how do I do that and still uphold to my standards? Yeah. I didn't know how to do that. Mm. So I did things with him that I would have never done if I had not lived with him, mm. trying to quote unquote love him. But now he and I have a pretty good understanding. Like I can go to Vegas, be with him. And if we go out to dinner, I tell him, hey, if you want to get a drink, get a drink. Yeah, I don't have to drink it. Go for it, but don't feel uncomfortable around me. Right. And it, we, like we're good now. Does that make sense? Yeah. No. And I think it's just res- it's just plain respect for each other. That's kind plain of respect. The, the, the word that came to mind when you're saying all that is just respect. Respect. Respect for yourself, that where you're at, and respect for them where they're at. Yep. And I, I like the idea that you're saying that you know don't look at the checkbox. Yeah. It's because I think we do that to ourselves, so we naturally tend to look at somebody else like oh. I miss church, right? Hernandez has been out of church for a couple of weeks. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's things like that. But no, I, th- I think that's a good point. I, and, I, and you have so many good points in Sunday school that I've always wondered, that's the reason why I had you come on, was I was just wondering, what has she gone through? Because it seems like it's, it's different than what t- people typically bring up. And the reason why I'm bringing that up is because I think you've mentioned multiple times about the 12-step recovery program. So how were you involved with that? So when I got home from my mission, I lived in Vegas. Now, I wasn't doing anything. When I say that I was being naughty, I don't think that it was by most people's standards of being naughty. But I was doing things that I knew Heavenly Father was not proud of. And it was because of this abuse that I had carried around my whole life. So I was abused when I was little. Um, And when it finally came out, I was about six years old. And my, my poor family, there, there is no manual for, Hey, here's trauma. Here's this type of trauma. Here's the manual. Now go and deal with it. There, there isn't anything like that. So everybody was just trying to do the best they can could for me and the others involved in it. And, um, with that came more trauma and not for in anybody's fault or anything like that, but it just came with more trauma. So I had lived my life feeling guilty. One that comes with trauma, especially abuse. I think most abused victims come with guilt. There's an amount of guilt that comes with it. Um, and so I had guilt from just that in general, but then I had also, um, been taught how to masturbate at a very young age and it was something that I carried through all of my life and so then when I went to college it was like this cannot be the thing that I struggle with anymore and my poor dad he was my bishop as a teenager so I never yeah so I um I refused to talk to him about it I had never told anyone, not even my counselors in high school, um, that I had a masturbation problem. It was not until I went up to college about a year ish in, I realized this is something I have to repent of. I went to my Bishop and it took me weeks, weeks to prepare my heart and my soul to get the courage to go and do this. I went and I talked to my Bishop kindest, most loving most gracious bishop. He taught me things. He taught me the power of the sacrament. Um, because I, I was like, do you want me to stop taking the sacrament? And he's like, no. Nope. 
You need to take the sacrament every week. It is going to be the thing that gets you through to the next Sunday. And so from that moment on, I realized I can't go a Sunday without the sacrament. I love general conference weekend, but I hate not having the sacrament. I like yeah. state conferences. I hate not getting the sacrament. But I also know that the Lord's grace and mercy carries through that as well. But the sacrament has become a power force for me and knowing that there is a physical um, power in taking that it's not just symbolic, but that it is a, a it's a physical thing by taking that bread and that water and that it is a protection to you from week to week. And my bishop taught me that. And so I repented. Um, it was obviously not something that went away overnight. It was something that I still had to work on. And uh, I got myself to the temple. I went on a mission, went to Vegas. And now not only did I have the guilt of my masturbation that I carried my whole life, but I also had guilt of coming home from a mission early. Um, something that I felt like the Lord had called me to do. And I came home early and um, I dealt with all this guilt, Mormon guilt. I hate it. Mormon guilt. Mm. And I feel like it's something that we do to ourselves. It's not necessarily taught, but it's interpreted. And we just put it on ourselves. And I worked my butt off trying to prove myself to the Lord. I wanted to prove that I was worthy of his love. And not just worthy and not even proving. I wanted to be worthy of his love. I needed his love. And so I was doing everything I could so that I could feel that love and that peace that comes from the Lord. And um, I went to my bishop in Vegas, fast forward, in Vegas, I'm in the singles ward. I go to my bishop. I had five callings at the time because I was trying to prove my love or prove my worthiness to the Lord. And I went to my bishop and I said, I need to go back to counseling. And this was my fourth counselor, I believe. And he said, well, let me think about it. And I was like, let you think about it. You're <laughs> signing the paper and you're letting me go to counseling. So week goes by, he calls me in and he goes, let's talk. So I come in and he said, we're going to get you to counseling, but I feel really strongly that you need to promise that you'll put everything on the table so that you can get healing from this. So I felt like I had made a covenant with my bishop and Heavenly Father in that moment that I would put everything on the table. So I went to counseling. Within about two sessions, I finally tell her I have a masturbation problem. And we talk about it for a minute, and she's like, you need ARP, which I had one previous counselor tell me that as well I had never told him about the masturbation problem I think he just knew that I struggled with the addiction of working of working for love working for gratification working for whatever because that is how I combated my guilt and do you feel like reflecting on that you could see how oh, evident that was yes oh yes but at the time I didn't at the time I was I would burn the candle at both ends until I would completely fall and I would become nothing because I had worked so hard that I had nothing left to give. Yeah, and do you, do you feel like the masturbation issue was only a symptom for something? Yes. So <clears throat> going to ARP, you learn very quickly. Um, one of the things is your addiction is not your problem. Right. Your addiction is your solution to your problem. Mm. And that was that's a really powerful thing to understand, um, especially just for people that are struggling in anything. Yeah. Um, I mean, people struggle with 
various things, eating, working, sleeping. What I, I mean, there are things that are not necessarily a sin that can become detrimental to yourself, yeah. to your well-being. And um, it is all self-soothing. It's all self-medication. And that is what masturbation was. It was not my problem. My problem was my abuse. My problem was everything that I had buried for years and years and years. It was guilt with my dad trying to make him proud and knowing that my abuse was something that was hard for him. And again, as an adult, I see it so differently. But as a child, I just saw it as a blemish on his record. Mm. And that was hard for me to swallow. Mm. So... And But as an adult, just to be clear, as an adult, I recognize that my dad saw my abuse as a failure for himself. But that wasn't something that I recognized as a kid. I don't think that that's something that anybody that, could recognize. That perspective until, you be, yeah. you're, until you're in that spot. Yep. So what, what do you feel like were key things that... Um, got you past all that to, to not only just identify what the deep um, you know things you were going through but also sort of the those solutions that got you through that and that's still you know I'm assuming you're still applying to today oh yeah so when you do ARP and it just so happened when I started ARP they were on they were on the introduction <laughs> because ARP works every week they do a new step and they don't start over for newcomers. Like you just, just keeps going. keep going. Huh. So it happened to me on introduction and the, the addiction recovery program book, everybody should have one and everybody should read it because it's incredible. And you will find things that you're like, that resonates with me. So the introduction, but then step one is honesty, being able to say, Hey, I'm an addict of whatever. I'm an addict of food. I'm an addict of productivity. I, You know how many good Mormon women, they dabble in everything because we're taught you work, you be productive, you give back, you be creative, you, I mean, we're just taught. And then men, men are it is instilled in them. You provide for your families. You're the protector. You're this. We put so much pressure on that the Lord never intended. And we become addicts to this, like... Ideology of doing of yes, being that thing. Yes, of being successful. Uh, we are addicts of success. Huh. And which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing until it becomes the thing that drives every aspect of your life what it's almost like if it's not if it's not within balance yeah everything has to be balanced i i i i've recently i've learned learning more and more about balance and <clears throat> kind of understanding more eastern f philosophies and whatnot and this idea about yin and yang and, and all these balances very powerful and yeah 100 percent agree and and i think about okay my balance right and it's so dynamic People ask all the time in grad school, how do you have kids and go to school? And to me, right, being in the church, I felt like, well, that's pretty the standard, right? But it's but it's not. And I, I always realize it's so dynamic. But when I think when you shift out of that balance and you tilt one direction or the other for too much too long, then I think that's that's when then things start to rise. So yeah, I, I think Well and I think right. that we start to we start to lose the line of sanity 
if I can go that far. Um, because then it just becomes what we have to do. We just, we have to do this. It's expected mm-hmm. of us when it was never asked, but we, we see that. And then the comparing, well, if she can do this. What am I doing? Yeah. yeah. If, if he's doing that and he's giving that for his family, then why can't I? Mm-hmm. And, um, and so the first step is honesty, just being able to say, I'm an addict. And then the second step is hope. And saying, I can overcome this. But the whole step is, it's not you overcoming it. It's allowing God to come in. Now, most 12-step programs are a higher being or a higher entity. The addiction recovery program is very focused on Jesus Christ and the atonement. And so it's hope in knowing that you're not alone. That this isn't your burden to handle by yourself. And then step three, which is my favorite step, is trust in the Lord. And it is, step three is all about turning your will over to the Lord. In fact, there's this beautiful quote by Nilay Maxwell um, in in the beginning of chapter three. And it, he says, all the things that we've been given, our time, our money, our things, even our talents, they're wonderful things to give to the Lord. But they're things that he already gave us. The one real thing that we can give to the Lord is our free will, is is our agency. Because it's the one thing that he can't ask for. We have to be willing to give it to him. And now he can ask for it, but he can't just take it, right? All the other things that we're given, our blessings, our homes, those can be taken away at any given moment. Not, doesn't normally happen, but it right. can be given. Give it can be taken away in, in a given moment. But our free will, our agency, can never be taken away from us ever. So to give that back to the Lord is really something. And in my process, when I learned that my guilt from my masturbation, my guilt from coming home from a mission, my guilt for not being as successful as I would like to be. When I gave all that away and I gave it to the Lord and I said, this is no longer me and this is us. We're both in the car and you're driving. Oh, it was the most beautiful time in my life. And it is hard. And being a mom, you being a wife, being an adult, having all of these responsibilities, it's harder to do that because it is a day by day. In fact, it's a moment by moment. Oh, I am taking control. I got to give it back to the Lord and say, all right, Heavenly Father, help me. Whatever you need me to do right now, let me do it. And letting him guide. And that, the times in my life when I'm really good at that, that's when real peace is there. That's when real, true joy and happiness and not worrying about the dishes in the sink and not worrying that my kids are driving me absolutely out of my mind not worrying about every bill that comes through the door, but just knowing this isn't all for me to carry. The Lord's right there with me and together we got this. He's not going to leave me. Yeah. I mean, I, and I can appreciate the, the, the battle to be willing to let go. It's a because, battle. And, and it's not a hundred percent, you know, once you're there, you're there. I mean, but to get to that point, there is there is absolute peace in that when you find peace within the savior right where like like the hymn says where can i turn for peace and uh 
like you said, there's always this push to be able to provide, to be self-reliant and all these things. And, and they're not, they're, they're not wrong. Like you do need to be, you cannot be just dependent on Correct. other things, right? Correct. That's definitely not the case, but it's a balance. It's a balance. It doesn't mean that you're going to do it all hundred percent by yourself. And even though we say that, right, it's, it's one of those things to actually accept and live that. Yeah. And, uh, no, I, I can, I can appreciate the, um, the recognition of the, the mountain to climb. And, and well, go. and I think too, there there is this huge shift in your brain when you realize that you're turning the will over to the Lord. Um, in fact, so it, it took me months to get this step. And in ARP, you don't move on to the next, you don't do this each step every week. You do whatever step you're on and you work it until you get it and then you move on. Yeah. So you don't just move on. So I was on step three for months because I could not grapple with the idea that I did not have to earn God's love and if I didn't have to earn it then I could give my will away but if I if I had to earn it then it was in my it was all on me right so there's this huge shift that happens in your brain when you wake up every morning you say all right God I have to go to work today because I do have to pay the bills but whatever you want me to do I will do. So there's this story, if I can tell it. Sure. Um, I had gotten several tickets in Las Vegas. <laughs> <clears throat> and when I say several, I think I had six at one time. They were not for speeding. One was for a tail light. One was for a blinker. One was for these dumb, dumb things. But I was poor. I was working at the salon. Like, I didn't have any money. I was lucky to put gas in my car to get to work every day. So I did not have money and I refused to tell my dad about it. And so, um, I had let these tickets go to warrants out for my arrest, which was really bad. So I'm going through the program. I'm learning all of these things. Part of the program is like correcting wrongs. So one of them is I had to go and I had to face these tickets. I couldn't just let them be anymore. So I go up to the court and I had two tickets on this particular day. One was in municipal court and one was in justice. So I go down to municipal court and the bailiff is down there and we're waiting for the judge to come in. And he's like, man, you guys are lucky that you're down here because if you were upstairs in the justice court and you have a warrant out for your arrest, they're not even talking to you. They're just taking you in. Well, I had a ticket in justice court and a warrant out for my arrest. So I was like, oh, I'm going to jail today. (laughs) So um, I finish up with that judge. I get in the elevator. Two cops go in the elevator. And I'm like, okay, this is it. This is it. I'm going to jail. And my dad told me that morning, if you go to jail, I will not bail you out. Now, granted, looking back, he totally would have because he couldn't have handled that. But, (laughs) um, But in my mind, I was like, my dad's not going to come and get me out of jail. So I get in the elevator and I'm like, oh, they know. These two cops, they know they're going to cuff me right now. And the whole time I am practicing trust in the Lord. I'm like, all right, Heavenly Father, if you want me to go to jail, I will go to jail. If that is what is meant to be here, I trust you. So if I go to jail, let me meet whoever I need to meet. Let me experience whatever I need to experience. If I need to die, please let it happen quickly. But whatever it is, I trust you. I got off the elevator. I go in to the court courtroom. 
And, uh, and of course, I grew up military. I was taught you dress nice when you go in front of a judge, yep. like you were dressed proper. So I was in full church dress. And I get up there, and he gets my ticket. He calls me up, and he looked at me up and down like three times. And he was like, what are you doing in here? And I, I was like, um, I, I have a warrant out for my arrest. <laughs> and, he, and he was like, what? Why? And so he looks at the thing and he, I, he thought he had the wrong paper. And, um, and he was like, what is this for? For a blinker? Or no, no, no. I think it was my taillight. He's like, for your taillight? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, did you get it fixed? And I was like, no. And he was like, can you get it fixed? today and I was like yeah and he was like okay dismissed don't do it again like just leave my courtroom and don't do it again so not only did I not go to jail but I also didn't pay a fine that I didn't no money for and I got to leave and I remember walking out of that that courthouse getting in my car and sitting there and just realizing one I trusted God enough to know that it was okay if I went to jail but two God also knew that I didn't need to go to jail and that I needed to know that I was willing to do anything he asked me to do that day, including going to jail, but he was going to have my back no matter what. And so it's that kind of mentality. It's knowing, look, I have A, B, C, and D to do today, so I've got to do that. But outside of that, God, whatever you want me to do, and sometimes he's going to move A, B, C, D around your schedule and if you're willing to do it his way, it will turn out so much better than you could have ever done on your own. Mm. It's that kind of mentality. Man, amen. Holy moly. So did you uh, pass step three after that? <laughs> after the courthouse? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think so. I, think I, <laughs> I called my sponsor and I was like, I think I'm good. Let's move on. Let's go. Yeah, That's next. Right. That's so funny. Well, that's an amazing story, Kristen. I really appreciate, I mean, everything you've said. And, and I know that... Those those were some in, um, not so as uh, not so much talked about subjects, and I'm really glad you brought it up because um, it it shouldn't be right. Um, and, oh yeah, uh, it's not like we're going to go out there and share everything. It's just that if we're really going to be connected to this word, being able to share even fifty percent of what you even shared, yeah, would 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 tremendously um, do that. So thanks for doing that. I really oh hundred percent. Yeah. Well. Uh, I'm glad you're able to get past th- uh, step three. <laughs> yep. And, and I can tell you you're a living testament to that, so that's good. But, yep. But uh, thanks again. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And there you all have it. Another episode of the Pasco and Teth Ford podcast. Um, I really try to make these episodes nice, short, and sweet, but the reality was she was talking so well and talked about so many good things. I just couldn't cut her off. So appreciate you guys listening. I'm glad you guys were able to listen through and uh, can't wait for you guys to hear it to the next one.